Hello and welcome back to the Soundworks Collection podcast series. This is Michael Coleman, and in this episode, we return to another panel from the fourth annual Mix Magazine Presents Sound for Film and TV. Uh, this is an all-day conference spotlighting the techniques and technologies behind sound for picture from production to playback. And in this panel, we focus on technology. Immersive sound experiences are breaking traditional barriers and reaching consumers in more ways than ever before. And with platforms such as Dolby Atmos, DTSX, and Oro 3D, content creators are engaging their audiences with the help of superior audio. But how does it all come together, on time and under budget? Learn how content creators are expanding and streamlining their workflows to meet the demands of multiple content delivery formats. Moderated by Westlake Pro CTO Jonathan Deans, panelists will discuss everything from how to set up workflows for switching between multiple immersive formats to how they meet the demands of new consumer technologies. This panel includes Bill Johnston, VP of Engineering at Formosa Group, Brian Reardon, re-recording mixer and president of Levels Audio, Kurt Howell, national manager of Focusrite, Marty Humphrey, re-recording mixer and president of the Dubstage, Jeremy Davis, re-recording mix technician of Sony, and Dan Sperry, senior manager of the content services group at Dolby Laboratories. I hope you enjoy. So welcome to the third panel of the day. Uh, I guess to begin, I'd like to thank Sony, uh, Focusrite, and Mix for having us here. To begin, uh, just a brief intro of each of us. We'll go down the line. Um, again, I'm Jonathan Deans. Uh, I head up Westlake Pro's design group. Uh, we build, design, and uh, execute you know, system integration as well as equipment sales for um, audio and post-production facilities. I'm Kurt Howell, uh, the national um, manager for Focusrite RedNet, Red and ISA, now called Focusrite Pro, but that's a secret. Can't tell anyone. Um, I guess I pass that on to you. Uh, my name is Jeremy Davis. I'm a re-recording mix technician uh, here at Sony and a couple other places around town. And I focus on the workflow of getting the actual mix up and running and then out to territories and distribution. I'm Bill Johnston. I'm the VP of engineering for the Formosa Group. Um, I do everything from crawling around on the ground, running cables to designing facilities and just about everything in between. I'm Marty Humphrey, president of the Dubstage in Burbank, California, and I too crawl on the ground begging clients to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, sorry, sorry, you're talking something different. Um, uh, um, oh, that's right. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Okay, uh, and uh, I work in immersive formats and have for the last five years, and. Uh, I find it very interesting, very challenging, but better yet, uh, allows us to do things that we can't typically do in a standard 5.1 format. Uh, I'm Dan Sperry, I'm with uh, Dolby Labs. Uh, I'm a senior manager in our content services group based here in Burbank. Um, I started with Dolby in 1990 and have supported Dolby's technologies in cinemas and on dubbing stages since then and continue to do so. I'm Brian Reardon, uh, re-recording mixer and music mixer and owner of Levels Audio. Um, started the company in the 90s and uh, was primarily doing television work and stereo and have been along for the ride uh, and, and and am excited about the new format and interested and, and encouraged by uh, broadcasters now that it's getting into the broadcast side of things. So... From a creative standpoint, how has targeting these newer immersive formats changed post-workflow? I know from your perspective, Kurt, a lot of it has to do with uh, the technology you guys have been rolling out with 
Dante audio and how that's impacted facilities? So the whole RedNet line and RedLine is based around audio over IP, which is Dante-based. And Dante gives you the ability to have connectivity uh, to in a star-style network with high security through level three protocol and to send files anywhere you need to send them with just a click of a mouse. It's a dot matrix that you can, without having to worry about routing or having patch bays, you can digitally do this from any workstation that's tied in and route things anywhere you need to do at the same time to as many formats as you need to. So that gives you multiple flexibility. It, it picks up speed. Um, as like with Formosa, they were able to, and you can address this more, they were able to remove a, a, a lot of interfaces and simplify their system down so that uh, having so many sync HDs was not necessary anymore. You could have one sync HD on your video format, your video machine, and then Dante converts it all into the CAT6 and sends it and everything locks up. And the 24-hour period of testing had fewer errors. It was actually tighter than a multi-sync system. Uh, so it's just, it's changing the way we can share files, where we can send audio, send it to multiple dub stages at the same time. I'll be working with each other on different DAWs and different formats and different PCs or Macs, all being able to sh share these files and not have to worry about, well, does the clock getting there? Is it getting there? It, it, the stuff, Dante just works, which is their cliche, but it actually does just work. Most yeah, the... Um we we went pretty much all in on uh, the Focusrite technology. Uh, one of the reasons is, as you get into these immersive formats, you have to be very careful to keep things as simple as possible. You really don't want your setups, your routing, your Pro Tools to console interface, depending on how you look at Pro Tools as a console or a workstation or an adjunct to a traditional console, However you're setting up your, your overall system, it's got to be simple and repeatable, easy. You don't want to have routes, too many routes that have to happen in Pro Tools, then in some other environment and in some other place. And then when you go to 7.1, you have to run over a patch bay and do all kinds of stuff. It's just much simpler. And one of the things that was great about the Focusrite environment is you just hang the I.O., it goes onto a network, there's a built-in router that comes up on a on a you know on your IP network. You just route from place to place. You can dynamically add devices, and it just shows up and and whatnot. We, for instance, add headphone devices all the time into rooms and just plug them in. They show up on the router. You just route to them. It keeps things relatively simple, and it also just keeps everything into a single environment. It also interfaces well with BSS. Uh, devices, which is how we do all of our monitor routing. So everything is just contained within a single Dante. And in our case, the BSS bridges to Blue Link, which um, gets us out to our amplifier. So everything out to the amplifier is completely controlled by the same matrix. If I was going to say, sorry, go ahead. What I was going to say is while we have a similar setup, although it's not using uh, RedNet, I, I use a, uh, uh, via Dante, I am using the uh, MTRX before that, the DAD, uh, and have the ability to have, I have four immersive formats. I have uh, uh, Dolby Atmos, I have DTSX, I have IMAX 12.0 and 6.0, and I have Oro 3D. And with that, uh, with the Dante and the layout and everything like that, I have a dedicated 128 out. So there is no setup. I can literally hit the ground. On, uh, if somebody says I want to go ahead and do Atmos, turn on the box, the RMU, and away I go. So if you do your homework ahead of time and you lay it out in a manner 
to, uh, you can utilize the ability to switch between formats or the ability to go with the format. It's no longer a hindrance when somebody says, I want to do a different format. In my room, it's literally hit a button. And the beauty of it is, through the Dante network, is the ability to A, B, and switch between various formats. So I have the ability, if somebody wants to go ahead and mix in Atmos, and then they say, well, we want to go ahead and do a DTSX, how's it sound there? We can immediately hit it. We don't have to retune the room. We don't have to change anything. In the, the, in using the DAD and the QSIS, all the QSIS is doing, my base management, my level, and everything like that, so I'm able to switch between formats. So when somebody wants to go ahead and say, well, I, I mix in Dolby Atmos, but now we want to hear it in IMAX, you hit a button. And I think that's really what all these various IT formats are, the ability to go ahead and streamline what you're doing, simple cabling, and rock-solid re reliability. And that, as a studio owner, it makes all the difference. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily just to apply to the larger dubbing stages like we have at, at Formosa or at Marty's place. We use this exact same kind of technology in our gaming division where they have just a, a small room with a, basically a home theater atmos kind of a setup. And we still use Dante technology to get into it. We use the BSS to control the um, where things go in the speakers, equalization, et cetera. And it's really just a miniature version of the exact same thing. And the keep it simple thing is really key, not only in, in the room so that you can literally just have all of your formats on a button. It's also super important in your preparation of what you're actually mixing or editing because just like virtual mixing requires a a degree of planning so that when it moves from editorial to stage onto delivery, uh, that's a lot of what the new formats need as well as they need um, a level of planning because the panning data is the main thing, but there are a few other things. The panning data is gonna travel from format to format, and so you have to have a plan in place so that it can be just as simple as, you know what, let me open this up with the Aura plugins instead of the Atmos plugins, and if you don't have that plan in place first, your um, going to the next deliverable can be uh, a nightmare, and so you have to, just like these guys when they're setting up the room, have a plan to have all of those formats available. When you're setting up a show, you have to be planning with editorial saying, hey, we need to keep track of what's going to be flying around the room. We need to keep track of when there's gonna be food groups placed all around, all around the room in whatever format, because when that hits the stage, we're all talking the same thing now, object numbers or uh, whichever format you're in. And there's also a problem now that you come onto a dub stage, Sometimes it's a week before the first dub and they're still trying to decide whether they're going to do an Atmos mix. Right. And are they going to do a native Atmos up front? Or are they going to do a 7-1 up mix after the fact? And it's very difficult for, you know, a mix tech and the editorial crew to be simultaneously planning both formats, knowing which they're going to do first. And Atmos has made creative challenges for the editorial process in that the idea of prepping and pre-mixing object-based data as opposed to what we got used to for 10 years, which is an editor sitting in a 7-1 environment making 7-1 pre-dubs that they brought it to the stage and they kind of went like this. And although the mixers added and changed and panned and, and there was a lot of work done ahead of time, that's harder now. And without people making a decision to use these immersive formats, or how they're going to mix up front, they can really make the editorial process and then into Jeremy's world incredibly difficult. 
Yeah, I mean, definitely the the one of the biggest things to go back to like virtual mixing, which started taking over um, a while ago, was you have to have a plan because you can't just show up with some audio files playing out of a session, which is basically an EDL. You have to make sure that everybody has the same plugins. You have to make sure that everybody has some compatibility between the rigs that they're on, i.e. HDX2s all the way across the board or whatever it is. And that's now exactly the same set of preparation you have to do for mixing in immersive formats, which is like, okay, the editorial rooms will need to support um, either an actual Atmos mixing environment or have the ability to downmix when the Atmos sessions come back from the stage. So it's, it's a level of preparation that everybody kind of has to be on the same page. We, uh, at Levels, we built our ninth stage, um, and that was our first Atmos stage. Um, and Jonathan can attest to this. Uh, he was really pushing for uh, Dante. And I, like probably most people, were at first was a little gun shy and was like, ah, I don't know, I think I'm gonna go Maddie. In the end, I ended up going with mostly Maddie to the RMU um, and mostly, you know, old school hardwired cable. Um, and we got into it. And once I put in the, the DAD and the, the BSS for my monitoring and everything, I was running some stuff over Dante anyway. And once I saw it firsthand and got familiar with it, I ended up putting a red a red five in um, solely because uh, in a nine room mix facility, um, and we have a big something that I'm very strong about is that we all use this a, a primary template with all the I/O and and stem recorder outs and all of that stuff built in, so that everyone still has somewhere to go if they're jumping from session to session or room to room, and all of a sudden. I started moving those sessions into my Atmos room when I was just doing a 5-1 show, and all the I.O. is spilled all over the place. It doesn't show up the same. So um, I ended up putting the Focusrite Red 5 in, and that allows you to emulate a 192, and so it shows up and thinks it's a 192. Everything follows suit, and it works out pretty well. So um, yeah, I'm a big, I'm, a, after I went gun shy and then came full circle, I'm a big supporter of the Dante world. How many people here are familiar with Dante? I mean, okay, so so we've heard of it. So, um, it, it's it's not coming; it's here. So it, it's 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 spreading across the nation, and people who are who maybe got into Maddie are, are starting to, as has he just said, trickle into Dante, and all of a sudden you realize that your life is simplified. And Dante works by word base, not IP base. So you can assign your your rooms by names and call them up by names. And, and keep things configured so that everybody kind of has the same language. And then you can save these presets so that, like you said, you, you hit a button, you hit a preset, and you're to a different format, to a different send. And then if, as you all know, in the middle of a mix, oh, I need to hear a specific sub in a specific area, we need to check something, you can just go find it, solo it, and pop it up. And then more importantly, it's secure. So we can lock that so that when I'm sharing files between two buildings, I know building B is on with building A, not building C, because I've locked them out. And as Dante Domain Manager is coming out, you're going to have even more access over submasking and, and control over. One guy's going to have control over all your rooms so that there isn't the opportunity for sharing. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned that. We actually segment off all of our uh, rooms completely independently uh, with security concerns and whatnot. And just this, once again, simplicity. We don't do much sharing between rooms. Um, really, the challenge in the setups that was alluded to before was, you know, IP backbone and whatnot is 
and, and moving from room to room, there's a whole bunch of things to consider. There's, as mentioned before, Pro Tools templates. There's routing templates in, in uh, Focusrite, how you name your devices, how they appear in the router. There's issues even with S6 and icon and the naming of the buckets so that when you pay, take a session from room to room, you don't have to sit there and readdress everything all the time. And there's also when you're running Pro Tools via satellite on a backside network and you're running RedNet, uh, Dante in, a, in an environment and you have a network out there for servers and whatnot, we actually have three completely different networks on every single one of our dub stages because you want to segment your network. You don't want to put all of your RedNet information out on your wide area network. You know, you, want, you don't want your Pro Tools satellite and your Pro Tools console necessarily to be addressable from another room. So you do end up having a bunch of IT networks on a dub stage now, and how you name those and how you set IP addresses and whatnot can make it easier to move sessions from room to room. And one of the challenges with these bigger formats is that when you do move projects from room to room, you don't want to pay mixers an hour of setup. You don't want to have Jeremy have to come in three hours early to set things up, you know. And you know what? Yeah, he, but I like being at home. So yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> no. So it it is something really to think about because the client isn't going to pay you for setup. I mean, right. it's just not going to happen. You can you can have a meeting about it and tell them that you're going to do it, but you know, and Tommy's tried, but um, <laughs> but it's uh, it it doesn't work. And so you have to minimize that. And so how you set up the technology in a room is 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 something to work on. And we're still working on it at Formosa. I wouldn't say we perfected it. You know, we're getting into this environment where we have a lot of things that are the same in every room, but there's still things that can be improved to make it better. Yeah. And I also think that in addition to the the jokes about setup, the more often you have to manually do something, to be completely honest, the more often you're likely to make a mistake. And so if you can, in one really well thought out um, setup time, when you're setting up the room or when you're setting up the workflow, make something that has a, a few sets of eyeballs on it and a couple of different ideas in the room. Whenever you get done with that, if that's a starting point, then you know that whenever you get to the next time, it has all that same thought. Whereas if the next time, oh, actually that show's finishing at 10 p.m. and this show's starting at 8 a.m., uh, Jeremy, good luck. Don't forget anything because you'll be real tired. It's not gonna work. You have to have some sort of, like, of starting point, basically, and that makes it easier for mixers to switch between listing formats and in deliverables, the whole room to switch to, okay, now we're doing Oro, et cetera. You have to have that plan. Uh, actually, I'd like to add one thing, and I'm gonna take a little step back here. When Dolby first started thinking about developing a new sound format, we didn't just wanna go you know, a couple of steps above 7.1. Now, we've had 5.1 for 20 years, we had 7.1 for however many years, five years, six years. We really wanted to take a big leap. And I think we underestimated the amount of work that that would take to implement on dubbing stages and, and in cinemas. And we've made all these gentlemen's lives semi-miserable. I totally apologize, you guys, for all the pain we've caused you. But uh, I, I was the one who brought Iasono in, so you can blame me. OK, good. Um, but luckily, we have smart people like Jeremy and Bill. Uh, That's that a lie. Can, um, I paid him. Have really helped us out, and equipment manufacturers as well, like Focusrite. Um, 
So they, they really helped us get over that rather substantial hurdle that we uh, underestimated. Well, just as one addendum, I mean, he's not wrong. It's the Atmos and, and Oro and these immersive formats. There's a lot of complexity in keeping panning automation virtual so that when it hits each room, it can be rendered into the room in the way that sounds the best as possible. But it's kind of like virtual mixing. At first, there was a lot of hurdles. Like there were so many things that could go wrong if you didn't have the right plugins or the plugins were the wrong version or literally anything. But it's the same thing. Now, virtual mixing that we've gotten all of over all of those humps is one of the best ways to keep everything that the client likes from the temp and make sure that you don't have to do work three different times. It's incredibly helpful for making movies better or TV or whatever. And I think that as soon as we have the workflow ironed out that all of these immersive formats are definitely going to help with that too. Because when you can go to a theater and the theater's actually semi-smart in itself to go, okay, this is a pretty small stage. The sounds should play back like this. It's a way better movie-going experience. And same thing at, in the home theater. If you can put a couple of uh, speakers on your ceiling and have it format to your room and make your viewing experience awesome, that's better for everyone. So yeah, there was definitely a lot of problems, but I think hopefully in the long run, they're worth it. I, I do think that from the editorial's perspective again, there are still improvements to be made in the workflow process. The local renderer that Dolby came out with, and even now the new production suite, which is basically the local renderer built into that, is somewhat problematic in that it uses a lot of Pro Tools resources to get the job done, which can make the balance of a sound editor who's already maxing out an HD3X, uh, uh, HDX3, excuse me, uh, environment, how do they balance that with using a whole bunch of tracks to send and receive to a, um, to a Dolby renderer. So there, you know, and in some cases you have to get a editorial room with an RMU in it and just do it as you would on a dub stage. But that's still an area where the flow back and forth, which we're used to a flow back and forth between editorial and the mixing stage because you don't get it right the first time. In fact, there's, you know, 84 temps and six finals and then they come back for fixes after the movie's been out, you know. But only pay for one. That's right. It was all, it was a, you know, exactly, for a fixed price. So it, that editorial component is still problematic in our particular workflows. Um, since I've been doing immersive for the last five years consistently, um, we are in a point here where the manufacturers uh, of the various formats have really listened to people getting feedback and have refined it and it is a lot easier now to be creative the same way it was a lot easier when we went from non-automation to automation it's it's that been that dramatic um, we recently did a, a movie where it was locally rendered uh, an Indian movie where they had everything mixed and I was hesitant and everything and it was Dolby Atmos and they brought it over big busy and everything and other than their choices for dialogue plugins, which I'm very specific about and they didn't talk to me about, uh, everything else worked magnificent. It was unbelievable the fact that you could take somebody else's hard work and take it and refine it. So I think where we're at right now, to me, is it's so much easier to work immersive and all the formats, especially Dolby, has, has been doing some really great stuff. The implementation of 12.8 uh, of uh, being oh, having Pro Tools in there is that just, was game changing yeah, for us yeah, on the last absolutely, show. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's what it should be. Uh, from the mixing standpoint, we should be creative, 
and not have to worry about how we get to point Z and have the focus of what we're doing as point Z. It should be, let's go ahead and, and mix something immersive to help tell the story. And the difference in the last five years of what we've been able to, to do is remarkable. And uh, it's just a lot of fun to do immersive. To me, immersive is the, it's the best way to get the mix out the way that we've always conceived it as initially, but to have that clarity and, and spatial place. Um, I did my first uh, surround mix in 1982 with Gary Reber, who's sitting in here. Uh, so I've been doing surround a long time. And every time, when, we, when you start doing surround, you never want to go back to stereo. And when you go ahead and you do surround, you went to 5-1, you go, now I'm talking. And 7, th to me, immersive is a natural progression. And it's only getting better. And I think the ability with all the formats that we have out there and the idea of being able to get them ultimately to even the home, mobile or streaming, I think the future is exciting. And I think that's why us fellow owners uh, here or mixers embrace this because we want to take what we're doing in an environment like this stage and be able to have it translate. And to me, sonically, the best way to make things translate is to mix it immersive. One last thing, uh, I just did a movie which was not immersive. It went to the, it went to the theaters. And um, I went to see it at a theater near my house out in Simi, and they played it at reference, Dolby 85, and it was wonderful. More Wait, or less what? exactly, uh, believe Wait, me, it's what? a rarity. No, 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 no. no. It, didn't yeah, happen. It, it, happened, it happened, guys, I swear. I'm not going to lie about this stuff. So, the guy got fired, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I watched it, and it was great. The director went to 10, it's going to be 12 theaters in Los Angeles, and it, it varied between 4 or 5 in the Dolby box, and about six. So we were down anywhere between four and 10 dB down. The reason I'm saying this is it's frustrating for the director and everything like that, but the point I'm trying to make is you are more likely to get your mix in an immersive mix to translate all the effort that you put in because to us, immersive mixings are a premium at a theater. People are paying extra money. The theater owners are willing to go ahead on the sound aspect of it and play it closer to reference because they want to justify why they're charging people more. So if there's anything from the idea of the best way to get your intention out there, I embrace immersive mixing wholeheartedly. And I think it's the closest that we as mixers and studio owners can see our product out in the field. I was just going to say that one of the things that in this entire workflow that, that really did work out far better than I ever expected was in the, in the Dolby RMU environment the full downs to 7.1 um, are quite good. And it's one of the things that I think help push along this format because if you're going to do a native Atmos mix up front, you have to have it be able to translate to 7.1. And although everybody still has to go back and do a 7.1 mix, it's not a perfect rendition because you make different creative choices. If you widened music out, you're not going to want to have that happen on your 7.1 mix, for instance. But in general, the 7-1 fold-downs, the 5-1 fold-downs, the stereo fold-downs in the RMU are great workflow. Um, they, just, they just work. And like I said, far better than I ever expected them to. The so. IMAX fold-down is amazing. Yeah, the IMAX 12-0 from Atmos to IMAX 12-0 is nothing short of amazing. That's almost, a, that's almost a hit the red button. Almost, but you have to handle the bass man. <laughs> yeah. but, but other than that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say as we were talking about it earlier. The... Uh, there's this talk about going either from 7.1 up to Atmos or from Atmos down to 7.1. And as the tools have come along and the workflows improved, if possible, it's 
almost universally better to go from the larger formats down because there's down mix functionality, which sounds really good now, but there's also um, that you start with the most complex thing and you get the most complex mix and you have all of the preparation associated with that. Whereas it kind of feels like I've done one where we went from uh, 7.1 back up to Atmos after doing almost a year of doing everything native Atmos and then going down. And it really felt like you were kind of ripping the mix back apart at the last second going, oh, wait, we have to, we have so many more speakers, what do we do? But that's not at all the case if you go the other way. It, you get the mix in, t in tune and then using the various different um, manufacturers fold down functionality, you can just go on to the 7.1 or the 5.1 and it's so much easier. And with directors, once you mix immersive, they can't go back. And if you go ahead and show them their mix, their movie in immersive, that's what they're going to want. If you go ahead and give them a 7-1, then they question everything because it sounds different. But if you fold it down, they know that's the trade-off, and the trade-off is minimal. So what's uh, been the workflow change in Pro Tools 12.8 and uh, the Dolby Mastering Suite that you guys have experienced? Um, I, I, I won't speak to the, the Mastering Suite because I primarily work um, in rooms that have the theatrical RMU. but. I can't understate how different it is because we just did the first, we did some testing uh, a few months back um, whenever Avid had announced it and we were kind of working on, okay, what does this need to do realistically? But we just did um, the Flatliners over on the Novak, uh, the first show from start to finish with 12.8.1 technically in um, on the stage, in editorial, and in uh, delivery for the most part. There's a lot of territories around the world that obviously don't have 12.8 yet, so we did also do a delivery pass that just has the standard uh, Dolby plugins, but it was uh, amazing the difference because, for example, if you're mixing on an S6, with which both mixers did, the joysticks that are on the S6 just work. You don't have to go grab a plug-in or have a secondary joystick, which has been mapped either via MIDI or something else to control uh, the panners that are only for your object tracks, which is mind-bending as a mixer to have to go, well, if I want to pan this thing, I pan it over here. If I want to pan the other thing, I, I pan it over there. So all of that went away. And then the other thing that's really important is the Atmos automation is always um, playing live. It's part of the, the virtual element of, of Atmos. And before, uh, literally up until now, your Atmos automation is literally always being recorded. When your recorder rolls, it is recording automation. So what that means is, let's say you take the effects rig offline to either cut some fixes or import something or whatever, that is now laying blank automation into the recorder. So whenever you go to playback for the director, all of a sudden, all of your effects objects are coming out of the center channel. And it was something that we basically- Woody Allen. Yeah, it was, it was perfect for him. Um, but it was something that we basically had to to babysit, for lack of a better word, and that's uh, something that was mentioned earlier as part of the growing pains with Atmos is there was a lot of the automation recorder functionality that you would have to keep an eye on, and one of the best things, in my opinion, that, that Avid did to help out the whole workflow was make the panning automation follow the peck direct and record functionality of the keys. So when you punch a track into record, that panner will punch into record and record what's playing back off the player. If you're an input, it'll say, let's, listening, let's listen to the panning automation that's on the player. If you're in playback, it'll say, let's listen to the panning automation that's on the recorder. And it's, it's it, basically what's funny is it returns you to the workflow we had three years ago before all of this started, which is you could go into playback, take the rigs offline and do a fix or reboot or whatever you had to do. And then, you know what, let's try this thing. You could go into input, you could mix, 
accordingly. And then the director could go, mm, you know what? I don't actually like that. And you go, okay, great. And you just go back to playback. For a couple years there, all of those things became much more of an ordeal. Whenever somebody would go offline, it would be like an alarm would go off. We would have a red flag that would go up. Okay, everybody stop. Copy Hold the on. Tracks now. Yeah, nobody move. He's going offline. Uh, and it was kind of dramatic. So it's great. It's honestly like uh, it was once we got, because 1281 has a couple little tweaky fixes for stages, actually satellite and those things. And 1281, once we got that for the show, it was awesome. So, uh, Marty, I want to kind of touch back onto something uh -oh. you said earlier. You're um, trouble. <laughs> Uh, ultimately, you know, as you were kind of saying, the, the soundtrack is the vehicle for conveying the story. So how has it for you kind of changed your ability to tell the narrative through immersive audio? And what kind of changes have you been making to kind of aid in the ergonomics of uh, using sort of these immersive techniques for storytelling ends? Well, the first thing I noticed when I started uh, mixing an immersive is it... Um, uh, in, in a typical 5.1, you have a center speaker that has dialogue, music, effects, Foley group, uh, and anything else you can fit in it. And we have, as a mixer, we've had to EQ, compress, and get stuff to make the point that we want to get across, whether it be dialogue or whatever at that particular moment. Uh, in immersive mixing, we can pull stuff out, spread it, and so I'm able to take uh, a deca tree, for example, music, and pull it up, pull it into the room, give it the space, still give it the image that the original scoring mixer had. We can go ahead and put backgrounds. We can open up things so that all of a sudden it frees that center speaker to be for the dialogue, the story. So we're still telling the story. I found that the mixes end up not being as loud because I'm getting the clarity that I've always tr been trying to achieve. And I'm also be able to use the thing that I think is we're in the only medium being sound for film that allows us to use dynamics in audio. Every other format that's out there is compressed. We're talking CDs, we're talking TV, we're everything. It's compressed. We have the only, only way to utilize audio to its max in storytelling with dynamics in sound for film. So I find it's given us an opportunity to really, really give the director a lot more latitude uh, in, in their storytelling and everything like that. It's completely changed the way that I've, that I've worked, and, and I'm eager to see here that type of immersive mixing getting to the home, getting to the mobile and everything like that. And, and I'm interested also to hear my peers here on how it's affected the way that they go ahead and build their facility and that their fellow mixers uh, have, go ahead and tell their stories or do their things. I, I, I don't think I've ever met a person who didn't like to mix immersive. Uh, it's just some some go ahead and take Christopher more. Christopher Nolan. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, some take more more uh, advantage of it. I mean, I've heard a lot of uh, immersive mixes from various studios, and and find that there's very little when it comes to objects in them. When you when you take away the beds, and I've always been to the other side that I like to utilize and take it to the max and be able to you know, when appropriate, go ahead and make it part of the story, utilizing the advantage we have to mix immersive. So, you know, I, I, after this question's answered, I, I got a question for Brian, and, and since he does mainly TV, but he's doing immersive, is how immersive translates to TV and the various mediums, because we normally work in, in theatrical uh, when it comes to immersive. And, and I'm eager to see how um, we can get that story onto television, whether it be something like Netflix or whatever down the road that will embrace immersive. To me, I think it's exciting times. And, and the, the further we can take immersive down the pipeline, the better it is for all of us.
one of the things that I always encourage everybody who's getting into immersive mixing is to do some research, do some reading on psychoacoustics. There's a lot of great literature out there on how your ears hear, how you hear in the front field, how you hear behind you, how you hear over your head. When we were in 5.1 and 7.1, it wasn't really that important. There was a couple of diffuse things going on behind us, 7.1 a little bit more than 5.1, obviously, but it wasn't nearly as important. Now that you're talking about point source audio, you have to worry about things like, can you really localize over your head? What happens with steady state sounds? How many individual elements can you actually tell or can your brain process simultaneously? All these things are important things to actually understand and know because it helps you mix. When all of a sudden you think that 40 arrows whizzing behind you is going to be a good idea, you might think twice about it to realize your brain is pre-programmed to go, yeah, that doesn't matter because the story's up there. So the story is still on the front screen. And one of the things about immersive mixing is that in the real world, your brain turns to hear things because your stereo perspective is all in front of you. In a theatrical environment, the picture's still up there for now. And so I do, like I said, I encourage people to read up on psychoacoustics because it will help you mix. It'll help you make good decisions. So Brian, to kind of touch on one of Marty's points and another one, when we were uh, you know, working on your television-centric Atmos room, a lot of planning went into you know, the listening environment, near-field screen channels. Could you speak to you know, some of the challenges that are faced in looking forward towards uh, sort of immersive home theatrical, uh, the client experience, and just your listening environment in general? Yeah, I, mean, I think the goal for everyone is to have all your hard work uh, reach as many people as similar and uh, sounding as you put into it. Um, Marty, you mentioned that uh, theatrical, uh, it varies so much from, from theater to theater. Um, I think there's a huge similarity between that and the difference between home theater, which is in quotation marks, and homes. Uh, typically, home theaters, people that actually have a home theater, have it calibrated, have decent speakers in it, and so on. Um, homes, I've been trying for 15, 20 years to get my 5.1 mixes to translate. Uh, you know, people have a, a picture frame over their center channel, nice family photo and the speakers behind it. Sometimes it's on the floor. Uh, so I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff. So um, it's one of those things where you're mixing with the hope um, that, that people are have it set up the right way. I do find that with... Um, more and more of the consumer boxes that are being sold, receivers have it set up now in a way that it's pretty foolproof. You know, you plug in the mic, you set it in a certain spot, and it just kind of does its thing. So it, it generally gets people in the right zone. But when it comes to immersive, there's so much new technology coming out. Um, you know, bouncing sound off of ceiling, off of walls. There's sound bars that are doing full immersive in it. Um, there's... There's really no um, tried and true in, when it comes to broadcast and immersive. Um, Jonathan, you mentioned the networks, uh, or maybe it was you, Marty. Netflix is going. They're fully on board. Um, stars were ahead of the game. Uh, the stars Network uh, supported and, and were broadcasting 
uh, Dolby Atmos. I think they were one of the first in the game. Um, Netflix right now is uh, in the middle of refining their deliverables, what it actually means uh, for, for, you know, before they can kind of mandate, and they have multiple tiers of shows, so not all shows will be mandated, but um, they're getting to a point where they're going to mandate immersive on their flagship shows, which, so my, my, my clue is as good as yours in terms of how, how it's going to reach people um, and how different networks are going to um, have issues in terms of delivering and broadcasting immersive. Um, but when I built the room, uh, our TV, you know, home theater slash TV Atmos room, a big thing for me was how do we set it up in a way that I at least can get as close to a home as I can. And so we ended up doing a full near field array LCR in front of the console and it's on stands, motorized stands, as well as our, our larger format screen channels. Um, and there's been some people that come into the room. Uh, we've sort of opened our doors to a lot of different um, uh, audio facilities in, in Los Angeles that don't quite have a home theater Atmos room yet. And some of them are saying, well, we wish that all of the speakers were all in a single array. So you had the same vertical off the floor all the way around. Um, to me, it's a, it's a really double-edged sword because you're building a room not just for it to sound good, but you got to have clients in there too. And they got to sit somewhere that they can actually give proper notes. And if I'm sitting there and I've got this really sweet spot right in the middle of the room and all these near fields all the way around my head, it doesn't do much good for the director unless he's sitting on my lap. Uh, which I usually discourage. Um, <laughs> yeah, usually. <laughs> it depends what they're paying. Um, <laughs> so uh, so it's it's sort of like when 5.1, I remember when 5.1 broadcast first became a thing, um, and those challenges were really no different. Um, people didn't have 5.1 setups at home. If they did, you were worried about them being calibrated the right way. Well, those worries are kind of less so now because of the set-top boxes and the, the, the receivers that are being built. But what happens next, I don't know. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm excited by it, and I'm, I'm uh, interested in, in guinea-pigging as much of it as I can. But I do think there will be problems, uh, and we should expect problems. So this one's for you know Jeremy and Bill. Um, in your facilities, do you find a need to kind of approach uh, from an engineering perspective, switching between the formats up front, or is it mainly just about creating sort of a consistent technology stack from room to room? Well, on the television side, it's somewhat interesting in that, at least here in Los Angeles, mixers who mix television still mix in a theatrical format. They're used to hearing uh, standard theatrical speakers behind a perf screen, they want that environment, and in fact, most mixers in this town mix uh, the surrounds at theatrical levels and not at the prescribed television standard of 85. They mix at 82, given that they all turn the entire monitor chain down to 79 so they can hit the right numbers. That notwithstanding, it's, it's really being mixed in a theatrical environment. And there are more instances now where we're going, as, as was alluded to, putting in small speakers in the front as an LCR pair using the, the standard surrounds, but still a lot of mixers don't like to do that. 
They like to stick up onto the mains. They don't like to confuse the clients going up and down because a lot of clients, that's too much for them. But I do think that on a go-forward basis, you're going to see a lot more than that of that. You're going to see a lot more of small speakers in the front of the room switching down to a home theater environment and, as, as was mentioned, maybe a second set of surrounds in the room that are for listening and mastering in a, in a smaller environment. We're not really doing that a whole lot yet, but I certainly see it happening in the future. Yeah, and honestly, um, clients can also struggle with some of the, the knowledge that we all assume, which is that each room sounds different. You can make it sound awesome and uh, translate as well as you possibly can, but there's so many times that we've had conversation with clients like, okay, when you go to the QC room, it's gonna sound slightly different and that's okay. And so I, yeah, I, I think that um, having something mixed entirely on the small speakers when they're coming into a stage to hear what a stage sounds like would would be an extra layer of complexity. But in terms of the the immersive part of the question, it's usually there's one format that we're mixing in uh, natively. Atmos is most of the time uh, we've done a couple in Oro, and generally what people want to hear kind of on the fly is the down mix, whatever that down mix is. So the uh, Dolby RMU has a real time. 7-1 and 5-1 button that you can kind of check as you're going. Okay, is this going to downmix roughly okay? Um, Oro also has a, a real-time downmixer that you can kind of say, okay, how does this sound in 5-1? And those are the tools that we use a lot. Occasionally, as we finish the pre-dub phase and sort of all of the basic sound decisions have been made and now we're going into um, the, the mix with the director, occasionally we'll check through the formats, you know, is this going to sound okay in Oro? But that's, that's a lot more rare. Most of the time you're just focused on the mix at hand and making sure that it's going to downmix okay. So the, those real-time downmixers through whichever format are something that we check a lot actually. And, and Dolby actually has a, a key command if you're looking at their Dolby monitor app that you can literally just cycle through one button 7151. And we use that a, a decent amount actually. Would you say your experience is similar, Marty, in terms of your use of switching between the formats or are you finding that you have to target you know, multiple formats more frequently? Well, most of the time, the configuration that I have, I can have any format, but typically most mixes these days are done typically in Atmos. And then you can fold them down five and seven, they do fabulous. And then typically it's after you have your Atmos mix, then it's creating a mix in another format. And then the question is using the Atmos as the basis of what the target that was approved, then you could go into another format, be DTSX, be uh, uh, Oro, or IMAX and switch back and forth. That's the, that's the focus. Typically, you don't mix four formats at once. You mix a target format that everybody approves and loves, but because of the various delivery formats, you want to be able to mimic uh, the other formats as close as possible with all their own uniqueness to that original target. Now, Dolby Atmos is, um, is typically the chosen format for most of the, uh, the studios in town. Uh, with their tools and their support and everything and the RMU. So it makes it, uh, it, makes it the, the choice for most people. So in my, in my situation, I would mix something in Atmos. I'd do the five and seven fold downs. They'd be fine. And then I'd take that master, and we want to go ahead and deliver to the, to the theaters. We want to have a DTSX mix. So we would AB that particular mix. We would then go ahead and want an IMAX mix. So we would put up the Atmos, uh, and we'd AB between Atmos and, let's say, a uh, IMAX 12.0, and see within their, each format how, how, how it could best 
be identical within reason because they're all slightly different uh, and all of them are better to me than any other 5-1 or 7-1, but uh, typically what it is, it's typically going from uh, the, from an at-most base to everything else. Marty, and do you ever... Uh, never. I didn't think so. <laughs> I didn't think so. Uh, how often are you having a project do multiple immersives? I've never had a... Well, I've had a project... It's... Like during, during final or deliverables, sorry. Yeah, yeah exactly, that, and that's, that's the point. I've, I've never had a project, correct me, Chris, if, uh, uh, that we've remixed for a particular format per, per se. Um, we've gotten mixes from other facilities that had to go into a target format that will rebalance for a format, but it's not like I would go ahead and take an Atmos mix somewhat discard that and take a DTSX. No one either has the time or the budget to do that. So it's it. typically one target mix uh, for whatever the particular format and then make that, the other ones mimic it within the strengths of each one of the formats. And that's what I was talking about with the with the seven one going uh, up to other formats. That's that's kind of what it is. Is whenever you mix seven one, there's some small degree of you have to take the seven one that you did and set it aside and now remix for the other formats. And that's the thing that we're all trying to avoid because you can go from Atmos to Oro to IMAX and all of those things sort of uh, translate in parallel. Whereas if you start on a smaller format and go up, you are basically throwing away some part of your mix and opening it back up. There is, however, um, on the editorial side, when you are mixing native Atmos, there is more to do in editorial. It is harder. You need more equipment. You need bigger systems. You need different monitoring. And you have to take that into consideration. If somebody says, we're going to do a native Atmos mix on a major feature, if it's a walk and talk, who cares, right? right? But if you're doing a show that's doing three temps and going through a six-week final, and it's a big show that's going to have a lot of picture cuts, a lot of um, a lot of picture changes, you got to think about that in, when you budget it up front because the editorial just cannot keep up with that because it is more difficult and it takes larger systems. You can't just hand a dialogue uh, editor a native HD system anymore and say, hey, you can just conform the stems and you're off to go and just here's a couple extra pieces of dialogue, you're actually importing an entire set of mix data, and your dialogue editor is sitting there with an HDX3 and a Dolby renderer in a complete room to get their job done. It's a, it can be much more difficult. Yeah, and it's and there's um, a decent amount of those uh, extra requirements on a stage as well, but there is a, there's a big difference between being on a stage and having literally just the physical space available to put an RMU and a bunch of... Um, uh, amplifiers and like everything that you need. Whereas in an editorial room, there's only so much space to, to, to fit everything. But the other thing that I wanted to say was when you are um, mixing in these formats, the creative content can also drive it. So like he said, the, the, when you're just walking and talking or uh, it's just a, a bunch of jokes, that may not play into um, having to mix an Atmos first. But for example, we just did the most recent Spider-Man movie. And if we had had to, every time Spidey swings through the room in an Atmos pass after we mixed in 7-1, the Atmos pass would have been three weeks long. You just, in those cases, you mix... Good. Yeah. <laughs> You, you, yeah. So you you mix to the content of the movie. So if Spider Man is going to be swinging through the room the whole movie, it's best to start in Atmos so that those decisions can down mix as opposed to being taken back apart. So, Stay away from the clients, okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Before we run out of time, I want to make sure we open up the floor to questions. So does anyone have any questions for the panel? 
So uh, over the years, I've been a producer, but also I uh, own a widescreen review. And I got to tell you, <laughs> the immersive sound element, which is the height channels in our language, is pretty poor for 95% of those releases. Well, define poor. Well, you, you've Do you got... want everything flying over your head all the time? No, but to me, an immersive mix should capture and present what you're, the, the, the atmosphere that you're seeing on screen. So the question is, is, is that how you're mixing? Is that how you're, you're, you're doing these mixes? Well, I think it's more an extension of the decisions that we make on the stage with the director. So the director's there with us, with us during final for playbacks, however long that they're available. And we make a bunch of decisions as a team uh, with their oversight to make the mix what they want, whatever it is. I, I mean, I made a joke earlier, but Christopher Nolan really isn't a big fan of stuff flying around the room. He likes his story to very specifically stay on the screen. So those guys make that happen. And they make it happen, and everybody leaves happy, including the client. And so what we try and do as we go to the near field, because near field is basically just another format in one of the many that we do now, is preserve their creative choices. And so I would be hard pressed to say that that's anything specific to Nearfield because we do a whole lot of work in theatrical to make it good for everyone, the executives, the director, the picture editor. And so again, when we go to the Nearfield, we're doing our best to preserve that. There's actually not a lot of changes, especially not in Nearfield, Atmos, and Oro. There, there is a little bit of uh, compensation for the amount of dynamic range that you have and a couple of things like that. But man, you don't really repan much. That's decisions that get made in these rooms. But one any? of the things, and I alluded to this before, is psychoacoustically, you have to be very careful about what you're doing. When you have a steady state sound above you, it pretty much, if it's a steady state, as soon as it's loud enough to hear, it's too loud. So you have a lot of problems with anything that's not in your peripheral vision here where your ears really do hear stereo well. When you have things behind you, and there's motion to it, you can hear some stuff. Even on the overheads, if there's motion to it, you can hear stuff. And that's why you get the, the rockets that go overhead. That's why you get the arrows that wing by. But you put rain, steady state in your overheads, it's annoying. And it's much like you know when people first got into 5.1 and they decided to put conversations in Walla in the surround. So when you sat in the back of the theater, you're like, shut up. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> so there, you know, a lot of mixers, they'll sit in the room and they'll try stuff like that. It doesn't work. And you're right. People have an expectation that this format's going to do something. And, and I think Dolby knows and every you know people who are in this immersive format, we have a level-based panning system right now. It's only speakers and level, right? There was a, the, the original system that came into town, Eosono, had some additional algorithms that actually allowed psychoacoustically by using all the speakers in the room simultaneously to give you some better directionality to, to things that were behind you and to your side. And they had actually worked out some algorithms for over your head that gave you a, your brain a little bit more of a chance to capture where sounds were in the room. It also gave you distance from the speakers and whatnot. But that technology, it's still out there, and I think that's going to be the next level that immersive sound mixing is going to take. We're going to go and implement those kinds of technologies, which will help that experience. I want to make sure we uh, get some more questions in. So, 
How do you guys see the the future of uh, virtual reality audio getting infiltrated into this kind of an environment? Because you know you you get those experiences with the goggles and the headphones, and you're seeing all this new technology that's coming out that allows you to keep the dog bark over here when you turn your head. How do you guys see the future of that getting into large format? I think it's going to be a really interesting combination of the theatrical experience where you have such a controlled environment um, and of video games, which have for years been rendering um, location sound in the game. And I think those two are going to sort of um, come together to make some really cool experiences because every time you put on your uh, VR goggles and a headset or whatever it is, it, it's a consistent experience with, like it is in a theater. And then you take that and the combination of the, the art of um, video game real-time rendering, and I think it's going to be something really cool. I think it's still a little ways off because the two fields are still a little disparate, but I hope it's really cool. Uh, I think we have another question. Yeah, hi. Um, for, the Brian, for Brian and the studio owners, so all this costs money, the technology, to upgrade. So have you found that you can charge more to do these mixes, or is Netflix saying, we want this, and Good question. You know, we're, we're gonna- We're charging the same rates as everybody was in the 1980s. We're a challenged business, I think, in general. Yeah, yeah. it's, uh, bu without a doubt, uh, budgets, uh, everybody up here is feeling the same thing. I mean, everyone in this room probably. Uh, budgets are not uh, going up uh, necessarily. However, this is an additional service. Um, and that becomes a really tricky thing. Are you mixing natively in Atmos? Um, if it's an after the fact, it's a lot easier to line item it. However, it's not as easy to do it and you don't get as good of a product. So when we're getting approached to do, you know, there's multiple different tiers of Atmos mixing, which can be mixing natively, mixing from stems, you know, uh, somebody comes in and you're, or, or archival where it's just completely, you're just, it's all additive. Um, all of it is priced differently in different tiers. And in terms of, is there a standard? I mean, uh, Netflix has yet to really roll it all out in terms of what, they, what they're expecting. But um, there certainly is, a, I mean, no one's, I don't think anyone's doing it for free. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is a line item. Is it, is it considerably more to, to help offset the cost of all the equipment and the, not necessarily. <laughs> if, if I could add, uh what we try to do at the dub stage is give extra value to the client's material because it's going to have a shelf life further on down the line, whether it be streaming or whatever. So to, I, I would prefer mixing everything immersive. Uh, I would per, uh, understand the difference of the down mixing and the, and the time it takes to mix the 7-1 or 5-1 from it. But I, I'd like to stress the fact that it puts value in their movie f to be able to sell it maybe not to the same degree as five years ago with Blu-rays and UHDs, but to be able to maybe make people want to have, have extra value by being an immersive product. And, and as long as you, you know, it was the same way when we were doing stereo and, and 5.1 came out, I, all the post supervisors said, came to me, okay, now we got, we're going to have to do more editorial. We're going to have to go ahead. How much longer is it going to take? You tell me you can look at any TV stage in this town and they're flying doing 5-1 and think nothing about it. It's the same way with immersive. The first few times you do it, you know, it takes longer to get off the ground. 
But after you get it down to a groove and everything, it should be second nature. It shouldn't cost you any more. The only thing that it is going to cost you is deliverables. Deliverables are a pain in the butt, a time-consuming process that nobody will pay for. That's where you end up kind of getting taken advantage of. And you really have to hit... It, 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 yeah, well, yeah, you know what? Yeah, there's I, more gear for yeah. sure. I set my room up for me. That's why I built it. I wanted to do it that way. I didn't do it for being ultra profit. I did it for going ahead because I love to mix. I love I to take on. And I embrace yeah. <laughs> And I love to talk on the mic too. Um, no, uh, it, but I, I think it adds value. Back to your original question, it adds value to the content. How we can pay for it is, you know, it's tough. But to me, we have to, the biggest obstacle is figuring out the deliverables and the time, and the naming, and all that kind of stuff. I would hope to be able to streamline that, and that is to me is the biggest obstacle from not doing immersive every time. I mean, we should be able to fit it in the same way the jump from two track, you know, stereo to five one. Yeah, make sure you're just not giving anything away. Really look at those deliverables. Make sure you nail it down before you start the project because people just expect you'll just do all this work and then you're paying a guy for two days of work. Yeah. That just is a giveaway. Yeah, and that's, that's going all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. That is the thing that you have to plan for. Like, after the first couple of shows where there was a, a lot of bumps and a lot of, oh, my God, we have to do that, um, you start planning for deliverables now because they are all interconnected. I'm not kidding in the editorial stage because they have to, they have to plan... Let's just take Atmos as an example, but it applies in all the formats. They have to. The effects department needs to know which objects they have. Uh, as the stage, you have to know what the music re-recording or the music um, mixer is going to give you if they are mixing in Atmos. And uh, then once you get all of that to stage, everybody's organized the objects. Then immediately you have to start planning for which other formats are we going to which set of re-renders or, or panning automation am I going to need to go forward? And it, he's exactly right. The thing that we're still all figuring out how to thin it down into a workflow that it actually works and that we can predictably know how long that we're going to need to build for this because at first it was kind of like shooting in the dark. Like, how long is this going to take? Mm, well, I don't know. Um, so we have a really good idea now, but it's still, that's the thing that we're all still working on. Yeah, I if if I could for, just add sure. one thing um, on you know, on behalf of Dolby, um, <laughs> is this a setup? You know, the, the number one question we would get from post supervisors and producers is, "How many more days is this going to take, and how much is it going to cost?" And initially, you know, uh, as Jeremy said, it was it, it was quite a bit. But one thing we've tried to do, and what we're going to continue to do as a company, is listen to our customers. You know, uh, listen to Brian, listen to Marty, listen to Bill, listen to all of our clients and customers to try to streamline and make our tools better to to make the process more streamlined. We've time so for, it can take less time. We have time for one more question. Yeah. So. It's, it's actually more of a, a statement back to Marty and, and what you guys were saying. It's so important to do those immersive mixes. It, it's for the fact that, for, for Sony as an example, we're going back through our library catalogs and we're purposely remixing immersive formats for re-release in television homes. This is, it's now, it's the future, it's not going away, and it 
just adds value to everything we have to enhance the home environment. And, and, and again, for Dolby, yeah, it was, it was a little painful in the beginning for the length of time, but now you do a couple of, a couple of them, it's hardly any time at all. It, it's so worth it. So I just want to thank Dolby for bringing it to us in the sound community. Yeah. Well, we, we try. And a big thanks for, I know I had a whole explanation about it earlier, but a big thanks for, for working with Avid to, to bring an actual tool set into Pro Tools. I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's yeah. a really big difference. And, and as far as added value, I, I think it's also important to say that because of the slightly virtual nature of keeping the, the the panning data as part of the delivery, there's also a little bit of future proofing that's going on. Like, let's say whatever next format comes out and everybody goes, oh, you know what? That's actually really cool. You can take the XYZ size panning that you have and apply it to the to the next thing. And that's great. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's all the time we have. Um, if you guys haven't stopped by, Dolby actually has three areas where you can you know demo the technology get some some hands-on some of the tech and uh yeah thank you so much for coming and thank you to our panelists